Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today we're doing something slightly different, and I'm very honored to have as my special guest, the impossibilist Tyrone Ravine. Ty Ravine is the son of the iconic Canadian impossibilist and hypnotist Peter Ravine, who traveled North America with his stage show for several decades. Ty was right there for much of it and was not only immersed in that part of the business, but became very involved in the music business as well, working with some of the biggest artists of all time. So thanks for joining me today, Ty. How are you, my friend? Good, Dan. It's, uh, it's very exciting for me to be on your show. I just wanted to say that everything that I achieved in the rock and roll industry came as a result of understanding the principles of hypnotism. Yeah. And I have worked with uh, over a hundred of the biggest names in show business. And I did so because uh, I had applied myself to doing something that I really wanted to do in life. And that was to continue being in show business, but being part of the creative process of visual effects right and yep. uh, i learned it from uh you know I, I heard about it first from uh from hearing that uh, alice cooper and earth wind and fire and michael jackson and people like yep. that were starting to hire magicians to make their concerts more spectacular and i said to my dad i said dad we've built three of the largest traveling magic shows i've been on your stage for years doing hundreds of these shows and witnessing all the greatest secrets of magic, I can throw my hat into that ring. And I think I do very well. I'd like to take some yeah. time off. Yeah. And he said, go for it. Nice. And uh, uh, at the end of uh, 1984, I jumped off the stage. I think I did our last show in Vancouver. And then I met, within a couple of months, I met Billy Gibbons at a party. Hmm. And uh, I just, uh, I couldn't believe that I was standing in front of Billy Gibbs, and I said, hey, man, I'm my name's Ty Ravine. I'm the greatest designer of special effects <laughs> rock and roll for, for rock and roll shows. And he just, like, <laughs> he kind of giggled, and he said, well, that sounds really interesting. I'd like to talk to you more about it, you know? And we, he said, why don't you come and visit me uh, tomorrow at the Tropicana Hotel, and we'll discuss some things. So I just spent the rest of the evening talking about how to enhance using you know, the, the mysteries of illusion to kind of enhance the value of the concert. And he, right. he was pretty excited about it. So I got together with him uh, and I spent uh, about three days with him, taking him around to different shows because I knew virtually every, you know, pit boss and theater manager yeah. in Las Vegas at that time in 1985. And uh, so uh, I took him to all kinds of shows. It took him to... Uh, the Follies Bajer and uh, and the Lido show and uh, and Hallelujah Hollywood and Splash and things right. like that and uh, and then we were just discussing watching these creative presentations and he'd say oh I like that and I said yeah that's pretty cool yeah you know and then we'd start discussing you know the logistics of it you know I just can't help but you know cool. we've been on the road with ten ton magic shows and if you make the wrong decision. You know, anybody could be a yes man and say, okay, we'll get you that. We'll get you this. But my natural reflex is like uh, he was talking about, oh, I love those dancing waters. I've always wanted to do that. And I said, 
Billy, it's a great effect. And with your music, it would be spectacular. No doubt about it. But here's the downside. You would need two systems, two big tank systems with pumps and everything. Uh, and you'd need to have one leapfrogging your tour. So you're doing right. each one every second time because you've got to fill those tanks up at, in the uh, early morning. And then you've got to drain them at night. And they're going to be the last, the first trucks that, that trucks that's holding all this equipment will be the first to unload and the last to leave. Right. And I said, it's going to cost you a fortune. I wouldn't do it if I were you. And so he started realizing that not only did I seem to have a, a, a tremendous insight to the uh, special effects and magical effects, but I also understood traveling logistics that can, we've lost houses over making some bad decisions <laughs> on some magic shows, man. Yeah. And uh, I knew the, we learned by the school of hard knocks. So I was sharing that information. He said, you seem to be aware of all the bills that we've been paying all these years, you know? Yeah. And he liked that about me. And so at the end of our three day, uh, little, uh, fantastic get together, it was, it was some of the greatest moments of my life. I said, so, what do you think you want, Billy? And he said, well, I don't really know what I want. And I haven't made up my mind on that. But we focus on our music and we do a great job of doing it. And we like to make our show spectacular. He said, I'm throwing the ball back in your court. You show me what you got. Yeah. And I know what I like when I see it. Okay. So I thought, okay. And so I rented this uh, studio and I built this miniature stage hmm. and it was all black velvet on a big table top. And I put Kydex black velvet, uh, just made this perfect stage looking environment. And then I put a stool in front of it and I just sat in there and I looked into that black space and I thought to myself, what would it take to blow my mind? I'm in the middle of watching a rock show. What would it take? You know, and I just said that day after day after day for hours a day. And all of a mm. sudden it started, my ideas started popping into my head. And it's because I understood the principles of hypnotism that I am the uh, navigator of my brain. And if I ask it questions and the right questions, eventually it will tap into the ether of uh of understanding. So I just had a tremendous confidence that my yeah. brain could come up with ideas. All I had to do was demand it of myself. And then yeah. all of a sudden I started writing these things down. It's like they started coming to me like crazy. And I went back to them and I made a presentation for the Afterburner Tour. Well, it wasn't called the Afterburner Tour at the time. It, it didn't have a name. And I said, you know, what would like to do since your last album was the Eliminator Tour, I want to I found a friend of mine. He had a uh, 1933 Ford, the exact car he used on his Eliminator oh, cool. <laughs> tour. And I took a picture of the dashboard and I made a giant model that was 40 feet, you know, scale to 40 feet wide. Yeah. It was about eight feet tall with a giant steering wheel and put the drums, a model of the drums, Frank's drums on the radio in the center and told him like cool. dusty's gonna stand in front of the glove box you're gonna stand in front of the steering wheel oh, wow. you're gonna play your music uh, and then we're gonna all of a sudden it's gonna change over and all those instruments are gonna be a rocket ship that we're gonna take your audience in a voyage you know i did a tremendous amount of you know storyboards and things to convince the band of it 
And that's how I got started. And it was because of uh, Billy giving confidence in me that launched my career. And I'm forever in debt to him for doing that. Like, I'll tell you some secrets about Billy Gibbons. I've never seen more of a principled artist that not only lives the life of a rock style, but is so disciplined on what he does. Oh, cool. Even though he's very relaxed and he likes to party a bit and go and schmooze and hang with the best of them, but he's very dedicated into doing tremendous shows and, and to writing really deep, cool music with licks that nobody's ever thought of before and you know i have never met another person like him but i'm very thankful that he came into my life billy was the biggest blessing because he challenged me he was like okay i want this confetti can as a matter of fact i want 40 of them and i want them all over our stage and i like man we had trap doors secret tunnels hidden passages in that uh, afterburner tour and elevators that pneumatic elevators that they would stand on the top and the smoke would yeah. blow up and then when the smoke recited the spinning guitars were there and they went down on an elevator so nobody saw it and yeah. it just disappeared and all that there was there was the spinning white furry guitars and yeah. then they were doing a quick costume change underneath so there was all kinds of mechanisms in there. There was no room for these big compressors or these big tank uh, cannons. And he said he wanted 40 of them. And I'm thinking, gee, how am I going to do this? I, I knew what the existing technology was. And um, I just like, what? how am I going to do this? I never stopped. I just didn't say, oh, they're too big. They're too heavy. It'll never work. You know, I just yeah. said, no, I've got to come up with it. And so after a while, I just realized, like, wait a second, on – those airplanes, those uh, when they give you that little speech about in the case of emergency, reach beneath your seat and put on this life vest and pull this thing right. and then it'll blow up. The So I happen to have one of those because my dad used to own an aircraft back in the days yeah. we lived in Vancouver. He owned a Cessna 310. Yeah. So we were always into aviation. I had a life vest and I took a, I looked at that mechanism. I said, well, that's a pretty big tank, little, you know, four inch miniature tank i wonder if if that has the ability to really blow a big load of confetti out of it and then so i i dissected it and i played around with it once i got past the restrictor that holds it back from just exploding uh it just kind of so the uh may west jacket the life vest doesn't explode right it slows the airflow down but once i figured out how to get that out of there i put it on the bottom of a tube and i shoved it with confetti and he said now what about the cannons and i picked up this little tube three feet tall and you know inch and a half wide and i said well i've got this and then he said dude we're playing twenty thousand seat arenas that's a toy you know and i said listen guys just come outside and let me show it to you like humor me if nothing else and and Billy had enough faith in me to like, okay, I want to see it. I went outside and I shot that thing off and Billy turned around and said, dude, you got to patent that. I'm <laughs> telling you, you got to patent it. I've never seen anything like it. Oh, cool. And I did patent it and became one of the most successful, you know, effects in the history of rock and roll. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Brad Roberts, best known as singer, guitar player, and songwriter for the iconic Canadian band, Crash Test Dummies. So you're another successful musician from Winnipeg. It's funny because I've interviewed quite a few people from Winnipeg and 
And there's something in the water there. I mean, it's disproportional how many uh, good songs and good musicians came out of Winnipeg. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but uh, you're another one. Well, my theory is that um, Winnipeg is is so cold and isolated and alienating that people during the winter time either retreat into hockey. If you're not a jock, like I'm not a jock, you retreat into a basement band. Right. And that's what I did. I, I was also very lucky in that I grew up in an era where my next door neighbors opened up a couple of the hippest cabarets and after hours clubs that had ever existed in Winnipeg, as oh, far neat. as I know. The Spectrum Cabaret and the Blue Note Cafe, nice. owned by the Riddell Brothers. And um, because we were close, I was always playing at their venues. So there was a built in scene in Winnipeg, kind of from the time I graduated from university and until we got a record deal. You and I had similar paths. You studied English literature and philosophy, which I have degrees in both of those things and uh, really enjoyed that. And and I like the way you talk about how it affected your music because I always looked at it that way. Like, like I didn't want to exclusively do music. I, there was so much more in life I wanted to explore, but you bring them all together in this big melting pot that makes you you. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, it's funny because the only thing you can really do with English and philosophy degrees it, in practical terms is to become a teacher. And I didn't want to become a teacher, but I found out that in retrospect, I I mean, I just took the courses because I really loved English literature and philosophy and I I wanted to explore it. Mm -hmm. But when I graduated, I realized that the vocation of songwriting, which I was about to embark upon, was very much facilitated by having done a degree in poetry and philosophy, because, of course, you get to read all those great poets and all those great lyrics, lyric poets, which helps inform, you know, one's lyrical strategy and songwriting. And, of course, the philosophy, um, you know, just teaches you to think critically, and that's just extremely helpful when it comes to writing songs. At least I found that. I always wanted to play music, but I just didn't see that it was within my reach. Hmm. You know, I, I had just no idea what the path to a major label was. And at that time it was either that or, or sort of do it yourself, punk rock methods. Right. And I wasn't savvy enough to get that going. Well, I kind of was, I got a, I made a recording before we ever, ever had a record deal. It only came out on cassette though, not vinyl. Right. <laughs> um, but um, now, now I forget what we were talking about. So, so I just wanted to know if you had a plan, like, like you, oh, did you have a defining yes. moment or a break where you said, okay, I can do this. I can, I can make a living at this. Yes, I did have a couple of defining moments. I remember I was living in Montreal one summer during my uh, university years, and I went and saw Steve Earle play at uh, the Spectrum in Montreal. He went up there and he played a great set and I loved it and I admired it. And don't get me wrong, I I didn't um, have anything but respect for the guy. But I thought to myself, you know, I could do that. Yeah, I could write those songs. I could front that band. And at that time I was, um, well, Crash Just Dummies kind of evolved over time. We started off as a just a novelty act that played cover songs. Okay. So... When I saw Steve Earle, I thought, you know what? I want to switch gears. I want to start writing songs now. I'd rather be in a band doing original material. And um, that didn't go over well with everybody. 
and <laughs> some people quit, and yeah. some people stayed on. And um, the people that stayed on, I think, were pretty happy they did. It's funny because when I heard first heard of the crash test dummies, you know, when when bare naked ladies came out, I thought, you know, there's a strange name for a band, but they wanted to get some attention, so they called themselves bare naked ladies, right? And then I thought a very similar thing with crash test dummies because I heard that this name of this band, and I thought, well, that's brilliant, that's great because just the name itself kind of makes you chuckle and it kind of makes you look, okay, well, what, what the heck is this all about? So I thought it was the perfect name. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time people ask me, where'd you get the name? And, the, and well, they don't have any opinion on it, but you're quite the opposite. So thank you. Yeah, no, I thought it was, I thought it was good because it was an attention grabber. And, and for you, you know, of course, having the baritone voice set you apart as well, because it just sounded different. So you had a different kind of name and then you had this, this baritone voice, which sounded different. My voice, as you mentioned, it is distinctive and I frankly thought that it was useless for singing pop music. And when I first started writing songs, I was trying to get people that I thought could sing to sing them for me because they just right. didn't like my voice. It was too low. Yeah. I mean, there was me and Nick Cave and Johnny Cash and Leonard <laughs> Cohen, and that was about it. And I didn't even, I, I didn't think that there was any hope in hell whatsoever that my voice would go over. And then ironically, when we released our record, People didn't talk about my guitar playing, which I'd worked on for 10 years. Right. All they wanted to know about was where I got my voice. And I'm like, I yeah. just started, man. I did yeah. this by default. That's what <laughs> I do. Well, the funny thing is when I, when I first heard Superman, like, uh, I just couldn't decide whether I liked it or not. I didn't dislike it, but it was so different. I just thought, do I like this? And then <laughs> I listened to it again. And, and then it became a hit and everybody, you heard it everywhere. And I thought, well, I, I do. It's it's different. It's it's something that just it turns your head a little bit and go, okay, I get it. Well, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> I, based, I based that song on um, on Superman uh, and his escapades with a character called Solomon Grundy. And I remember when that song came out, all of these newspapers began to write these articles saying, Superman never fought Solomon Grundy. This guy was a charade. <laughs> And I couldn't believe it. I actually had yeah. to dig out my copy of the, of the comic book and fax the cover and send it to newspapers to prove yeah. that, in fact, That's funny. they had fought. You know, I wondered two things. One was about how to classify your music. And then the second thing was how you came up sort of amongst, you know, the other genres. You were just getting the spillover of the 80s and the hair metal was was still out there, but kind of fading. And then the grunge was coming in and then there was, you know, Blue Rodeo and those kinds of bands. I mean, it was a real mix of everything, right? So how do you come up in all that and how do you characterize it or classify it? Well, you know, I didn't listen to a lot of other music, to be honest, when I started writing music. Um, so I wasn't really aware of feeling like I had to carve out a special niche or or fit somehow into a pre-existing um, scene. Okay. I just wrote f f what I thought interested me and presumed that it was would interest other people, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty presumptuous. Um, but no, I didn't. I, those factors did, however, work to our advantage. I mean, Superman Song was a great big hit in Canada, but it got nowhere in America. And that was largely because there weren't any radio formats out there that were interested in playing that kind of music. Right. Um, but that all changed between our first record and our second record. And um, this AAA radio format became popular. 
that radio format and and those folks would play Nirvana as well as us. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, basically that whole grunge scene opened the door to a lot of bands that weren't even necessarily grunge per se, but were just doing something that wasn't in the smack dab in the middle of the mainstream. Yeah, and that's a you make a good point because it, it it's been described as alternative. But and and from your perspective, I I totally get what you're saying because a songwriter, I write songs that come from me. I don't know, I'm not I'm not chasing anything in particular. But the record companies, they go, look, we got to cut it, wrap it, freeze it, give me something I can market. Yes, well, I think that's what they called it, folk alternative, yeah. and that made sense for Superman song. And our first record is kind of folksy, um, but that was just our first record, and we moved on after that to a much different sound yeah and then and then obviously became even more mainstream uh with the mm, so then when you wrote the mm, song i thought okay well there you go let's just take something and just put a little just a little twist on it so so the fact that it's just a little bit different it gets people's attention it cuts through that mass of everybody and their dog trying to write i mean you know what happened after nirvana came out good lord there was a complete flood of all that kind of sounding similar sounding music and our guys were flying to seattle looking for the next nirvana yeah and you came up in in between all that with uh, god shuffled his feet yes indeed and uh interestingly that record was panned in canada and um the the song Mm-mm-mm was not played on the radio very much and uh much music didn't want to play the video wow and everybody was just turned off. Everybody in the Canadian industry basically turned on us. It was bizarre. Yeah. Our yeah. own hometown newspaper published the most scathingly negative review of, of God Shudgeable His Feet on the day that it was released. And it seemed oh. like Canada just, the rest of the music industry just fell into place. Ouch. So for luckily for us, even though mm, didn't last on the charts more than a couple of weeks, um, it lasted on the charts for many months in America and went all the way to number two on the Billboard charts. Yeah, we were literally chewed up and spat out by the Canadian <laughs> music industry, and then had our careers revived by the American industry. Wow. And once we started doing well in America, all of a sudden Canada wanted to play Crash Test Dummies. But they wouldn't play mm-mm-mm because they'd already decided that they'd flush that one down the toilet. So we actually stopped touring, went back to Canada, shot a video for a different song, and released that as a single in the Canadian territory only so that they could have something to play that wasn't mm-mm-mm. Today I'm very honored to have as my special guest recording artist and Canadian icon B.J. Cook. BJ is perhaps best known as a member of Skylark, but has done much more than that. So thanks for joining me today, BJ. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. And good morning to you from The Rock. <laughs> yes, you're you're in Victoria. So it's it's Bonnie Jean. That's what the BJ stands for. Yeah. Nobody calls Bonnie you that Jean. anymore. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting uh, how I got that name too. Yeah. Many, many, many years ago, there was a giant nightclub in Vancouver. You know, believe it or not, Vancouver used to be a mecca. Hmm. You know, music. A, a music mecca and yep. not there was a nightclub called the cave yep. and all the acts that were headlining in vegas all the big names like sinatra and tony bennett and ella fitzgerald and all those people would break their acts in 
at the cave and wow. Izzy's, two nightclubs. So <sighs> when I'm 18, I leave the island and I go over to Vancouver in search of my biological mother. Okay. Mm. So I, um, I get it. I find her. She knows everybody in Vancouver and she gets me an audition to be a showgirl at the cave supper club. Oh, wow. And this this is way before nudes and nobody was topless or any of that. These were, this is like, you know, Viva Las Vegas with the showgirls and the dancers and 15 piece orchestra. And it was just pretty amazing. So on the day that I auditioned, the choreographer who was Jack Card said to the six dancers, Here's the two new showgirls I'm adding to the show. They weren't really thrilled about it. And uh, this is Patricia and this is Bonnie. And all of a sudden, this the littlest of all the girls comes up chewing gum in her fishnet stocking. And, and she said, uh, hey, kid, what's your second name? And I looked at her kind of strange and I said, Jean. And then she turned around to everybody and said, okay, girls, meet BJ. There's only oh. one Bonnie in this troupe, and it ain't you, kid. So oh, her name wow. was Bonnie, and I got yeah. to be BJ. And wow, that, and, that, and that stuck. Yeah, and I, well, it was kind of cool because then I decided that I was going to be a singer, and BJ Cook was a great stage name because everyone thought I was black and a guy. So yeah, kind of cool, you, you know? <laughs> I started singing when I was about 15 mm. and my cousin was a drummer in a band and I used to go and sit in with them and, you know, they'd slip me five bucks. And back wow. then that was huge. I mean, yeah. $5 was like 25 or $35 or $50, yeah. right? For and sure. so I sort of thought, well, geez, I'm a pretty good singer and I'm getting paid for it. And I had terrible dyslexia and a terrible problem in school. So I just walked out one day. I just yeah. said, I can't handle this. I started singing and the musicians um, that I worked with back then, a lot of them are still alive and still here. Cool. And, uh, and then um, David Foster was in a band with them as well called the strangers. Right. Back, way back when in the sixties, I think, or, huh maybe even earlier. Um, Yeah. So I go back all the way and I've just been in the music business my whole life. I've never really had a day job. Back then, you have to remember, a woman had a choice. You were uh, a secretary or a school teacher or, you know, but you weren't, you didn't think of being a rocket scientist or, you know, you were just, you you were a housewife or a secretary or a school teacher, or something, but or, yeah, a, nurse, I got you. or a nurse. That was yeah. the one. right. I had no aptitude towards any of that. I yeah. <laughs> in my day, there was a place to go. Yeah. You know, I I could get a record deal, or I could work in a club, or I could because we had house gigs for two or three years at a time at a big club in Vancouver. Right. So I I got to learn my craft and learn stage presence and makeup and how to dress and all that stuff, Uh, you know, just doing it. Now, kids have no chance for that because there isn't an industry any longer. It's very sad to me. 
so you got immersed in the music business and stuff, but then how did you meet David Foster? Did you go back to Victoria or was he over no, here? No, David, we all knew, everybody in Victoria knew about the golden boy. And yeah. even back then, I mean, he left to go with these guys here, all these guys in Victoria, they all took off and went to uh, Vancouver. No, they played here. And then for some reason they went to Europe okay. and, and they ended up playing with Chuck Berry hmm. of all people. Yeah. And uh, and then uh, David came back and he got the house gig with, um, he played a lot of, you know, around. And then he got the house gig with Tommy Banks at the Embers. Okay. And David was a jazz maniac. Yeah. Like he, the only person he ever listened to was Bill Evans, his favorite piano player jazz mm. piano player and he the band the people that he hung out with were all really really excellent jazz musicians okay yeah. so how we got together is kind of a miracle uh i've known i've known david since he was 17 or a kid right yeah and i'm seven years older than he is so okay. i i never really paid any attention to him to me he was just a skinny kid who played really well never really paid any attention and I started, this uh, This sounds like it's BS, but it's the truth. I started having visions about this weird guy that would come to me and tell me that I had to take my band that I had at that point and to go to Toronto. Oh. And I had no desire to go to Toronto and never did and still don't. But, <laughs> um, I, I, it, it made me crazy. And I started calling the band leader. The, uh, the leader of the band, Al Mickey, uh, he he just said to me at the at the end of the night, he said, by the way, everybody, I'm firing BJ. She hmm. has this thing about Ronnie, this guy, Ronnie Hawkins, and I don't want to go to Toronto. I'm not interested. I don't want to go. So now I'm on one month's notice. Carl Graves is taking over my place. Carl, who was the other guy in Skylark. Right. Um, and I'm getting ready to go to Toronto. I'm going to go and see if I can find this Ronnie Hawkins who keeps coming to me in these visions about taking my band, right? So you'd never met Ronnie Hawkins and you just heard about him? He I'd never even heard of him, to tell you the oh. truth. Oh, wow. I didn't even know who Ronnie Hawkins was. I don't think anybody here really knew that much about him. He was huge yeah. in Toronto, but not oh, yeah. here. So um, everyone thought I was crazy. I leased out my apartment. I was taking off. Yeah. So I'm, I'm on one month's notice and I'm, I'm working one night. It was Saturday night or something. And, oh. and uh, I could see from the stage, because back then we had giant stages with curtains that went across and dressing yeah. rooms in the back. And, you know, it was show business. It was yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I'm looking on stage and I see David Foster come in with a guy named Jim Wolchuk, Jim mm. and Judy. I thought, geez, what is he doing here, slumming? You know, because David was big time to all of us. We thought he was like a, you know, classical or a jazz musician or whatever, right? Yeah. So he comes into the club and he said, I, so when on the break, I went down and sat with him and I said, so why are you here of all, of all places? And he said, well, I need your help. He said, um, I just put this band together for this weird guy uh, in Edmonton. He came to Edmonton to find some musicians. Anyways, okay. it's Ronnie Hawkins. Oh. And they're looking for a girl singer. 
And that's the truth. Wow. And that's how I hooked up with David. I mean, I, I, you know, we, I had no intention of being with him. I was just in the band and I was yeah. a singer and he was this little skinny young guy. Yeah. And then um, we were with Ronnie on the road for about a year and a half. And then Ronnie fired him. Okay, but just to go back for a sec. So you you all packed up and went to Toronto, but you weren't we romantic. From, yeah, we, we, we put the band together in Edmonton and, and then got on Ronnie's tour bus and off we went to Toronto. Uh, okay. Were you romantically involved with David at that point no, or did it just no, sort of evolve? He, no, he was my sort of roommate. Okay. At that point, we weren't. He, we weren't a couple. Yeah. I mean, not that I, you know. I mean, everybody thought we were because we were living in the same apartment, but not as a couple. Okay. And and then it just sort of, it, you know, it became, you know, what happens. You get on the road, and there it is, and there's nobody else around, and you're touring, and you're one nighters, yeah. and blah blah blah, and you're. So, anyways, we became a couple, and uh, then Ronnie fired him. And and this is for a, what? <laughs> for what? Well, this is what he said. He called us into the room, both of us, and he said, "Because um, now we were a couple, just towards the end of our thing together." We, yeah. you know. So Ronnie said, um, uh, "Okay, uh, listen, son." He said, "You play like Beethoven, but you look like a cadaver on stage, son." And I'm going to have to fire you. <laughs> and and I thought he was kidding, right? I said, oh, <laughs> and he said, I'm serious. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guests, Ross Rayom and David Smith, also known as Ross Roman and David Gray of the 80s band Roman Gray. I guess, Ross, you were in Ottawa and David, you were from Toronto. Well, no, David I was... and I, we went to high school together. Oh, okay. In That's Ottawa. The, in Ottawa. So the yeah. real true story is... David and I went to the same high school, Sir Robert Borden. We're born eight days apart. He was born, oh. so we're very close in age, although we weren't friends in high school. Uh, yeah. David belonged to a, a clique uh, of, uh, out of Bell's Corners with a bunch of musicians, and so I was in a different kind of group, as you know high school is. And we were aware of each other um, through a mutual friend, Mark Entwistle. And Mark played in the bands. So really... It was in upon leaving high school that we really hooked up, got a house okay. to live in, you know, live the rock and roll life, and then started working on music together. It was really the end of high school that it uh, hmm. that it came together. Although we were aware, uh, David played in a, a band called Teos at the time, a bunch of fifteen and sixteen year old kids, excellent band, fantastic band. I think his yeah. your dad made you quit, eh, David. <laughs> yeah, yeah we but but, but basically, I, so I would go watch them play, and I was enthralled with. You know, here's a bunch of 15-year-old guys playing David Bowie, Jethro Tull, Deep Purple. I was blown away. And I thought, oh, there, that's, you know, that could be. So I was sort of was shadowing through my friend Mark, this band of Dave's. And eventually yeah. we we got together at the end of high school and decided we, you know, moved into a house and, uh, you know, music kind yeah. of grew from that. Well, what kind of training did you have, David? Did you grow up I took, playing? Uh, yeah, my mom sang. The rest of the family is completely tone deaf. Um, I took piano when I was about six or seven for three or four years. And then I sort of lost interest in it. And then around, I don't know, when I was 12 or 13, I got absolutely fascinated again in piano. And I just spent forever sort of playing piano, drawing on, you know, very primitive theory that I'd learned. Um, yeah. And so I, I would say, but yeah, basically self-taught, but with, yeah. with piano background and, and a fair bit of theory. 
Yeah, the reason I ask that is because it, it, it's all over the map. You know, some guys just think it's the coolest thing in the world. Of course, the times that we grew up being in a band was a super cool thing to do. Oh, and some guys yeah. just sort of fell into yeah. it and other guys trained and were really well-schooled. But that didn't seem to be indicative of the level of success. Some guys just had a feel and they just wrote songs and played yeah, and it worked mo- out. Most people, most people that we, we would have hung out with would have not been able to read music hmm. or or. or Certainly not properly. I mean, I could read. I could yeah, decipher. Yeah, the rock. It. The rock crowd was uh, yeah, not the same as like you know the jazz. Great. I mean, that was the seventies, yeah. right? Everything was Led Zeppelin, Jethro Tull. That's you know. But get, but at the same time, we'd be quite technically. I mean, I played in bands when I was seventeen or eighteen as a David. They were playing Yes in Genesis, so it wasn't that yeah. we were non-musical. It's just that we weren't formally trained. But the depth of musical knowledge was was fairly significant, given the fact we didn't have formal training. So with you guys, like when you came up, did you have like a purpose and a, a destiny? Did you say, we're going to, we're going to make it, man. We're going to be rock stars. Say, is that your thing or was it more casual? Part, pretty, part of we're it, pretty delusional. We thought, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> part of it's that, but I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's an old adage, but it, it's, you just don't think you can do anything else. You're not interested in anything else. You're just sort okay. of living and breathing music all the time. And there, yeah. and then hanging, subsequently hanging around other people who were doing the same thing. I mean, in our situation, after high school, there was three years where we were in Ottawa and we just, we played in sort of quite bad cover bands. Mm. Uh, we were spending a fair bit of time actually in New York with some uh, people we had met down there. And we, there was, we had a, our, our sort of moment of revelation as we had come back to Ottawa and we were driving down Merrillville Road on a Sunday after spending a, you know, a wild weekend in 1970s New York. Uh, and it's like, what are we doing here? Like, like we gotta like leave, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so we basically, you know, packed up the, you know, the truck and moved to, uh, not Beverly to Toronto and, right. and we didn't know anyone and we got a real crappy house and we basically, as soon as we got there, just put ads in the paper for a band. And, wow. and this was 79, 80. So, you know, there yeah. was, there was a lot of enthusiasm with, with early new wave and of course, yeah. the, you know, the punk scene and all that. But I mean, quite honestly, we were, uh, punk was fascinating to us, but I don't, we were never punks, you know, right. I think we were much more interested in sort of the, the new wave element of it. And that's yeah. really when the various incarnations of Roman Gray started, I'd, I would say it's in 1980. Yeah. And uh, I'd say the sort of second revelation was after, you know, playing all the small towns around Toronto and what have you for, I guess, about a year or so. It was like, you know, we got to get a record. I don't care yeah. how we do it. We got to get a record out. We would go down to New Jersey where we had some friends. And then okay. from 78 to 80, um, and you know, literally no money. We just show up and stay with our friends. And, and we'd go into New York, into Manhattan. They had a big dance club called Hurrahs. It was also the age of right. CBGBs. And so we'd go to New York with our friends and we'd go. And I mean, I saw the Knack one night before yes. they weren't known. I saw, and they'd be playing B-52s and Elvis Costello and all this mm. music that had not come to North America yet. Right. You could see it was coming, but it hadn't arrived. And we were still in a band playing kind of pseudo-Genesis at the time. Right. And that mm-hmm. was, just, we were like, oh my God, th- this is what's coming. This is not what we are doing. So we came back to Ottawa and that was part of the Maryville Road experience. We, you know, chop our hair off, burn the bell bottoms, get a skinny right. tie and and start writing more uh, you know, aggressive, not punk, but that uh, more attitude music than than right. uh, 
than the kind of genesis style. And we actually kind of took our, our initially our, our template or our lodestar was David Bowie and hmm. Heroes. To okay. us, Heroes was the perfect song in 1977. It was like, it. it's new, it's dark, it's catchy, it's poppy, it's weird, it's intense, it's musical. That's why we weren't really punk. We still were musical, but we, we saw that as sort of, okay, that's that's kind of an, an avenue we might might want to follow, which yeah. we did. Yeah. Our- it's a good way to put it. I, the operative word there is sort of the dark, you know, bouncy, bouncy darkness, which, bouncy you know, darkness. which a lot of bands <laughs> were doing, obviously, in the, in the early 80s. You know, you couldn't ignore what was coming from the punk side. I mean, it was going to mm-hmm. wash away everything. So you, you really had to adapt. And so people like the police, Pretenders, Elvis Costello, Joe Jackson, us, you know, you had to find a way to sort of get, you know, make that kind of music now without because you could you couldn't be unauthentic punk we weren't we weren't authentically yeah. punky so it's roman gray kind of does this thing where we sort of veer off and then and come back is so going back to that kind of music in 1980 wasn't that big a stretch because i grew up listening to deep purple yeah so loud thundering aggressive music really was part of my dna yeah, and that's what I when I when I listen to your stuff though, like I was trying to categorize it. It's, it's new waveish, <laughs> it's luck. synth pop, it's yeah, it's it's rock, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, you know, and I guess being different works for you and against you, right? I mean, you got you got to sort of fit into some kind of genre, but you got to be different enough that go, oh, that's Roman Gray, that's those guys. Yeah, I think the the other big influence too, I'm, and uh, I'm, for me and for Ross as well was was I mean, I was a huge Beatle fan, and yeah, and just yeah. you know the the three three and a half minute hooky catchy pop song like in regardless of genre you know whether it's i'm the walrus or abba you know it's you can't deny a good three and a half minute pop song right and as you know time has proven that can almost be sort of fit or forged into any form of music we were really songwriters first and and everything else second that was always the thing was we believed that writing really good pop songs was not just difficult to do, but something that, you know, we really wanted to, that was what we wanted to leave our mark in was that. And so we could sort of veer with trends a little bit because we would just write different songs then. Oh, okay. We're a country band. Yeah. Well, See that for me though, that's the musician side of it. Like the record company wants to say, "Well, we got this new wave band, yeah. we got the synth pop oh, band, yeah. you're gonna love them." Yeah. And musicians yeah. are going, "You know, like I listen to James Taylor, I listen to Santana, yeah. I listen to Deep Purple. Yeah. Like, come on, like I'll write whatever. I don't care." That's not what record companies want to hear, Dan. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, we famously was a Steve Katz, I think, maybe in New York, said to us, "Where's the handles?" Was a famous comment he made when he listened to some of our tapes he goes i, oh, it was I a love revelation. it it was a great wisdom he I goes think. i love it but yeah. where's the handles what am i selling are, are you know what is, what right. is this yeah. and we couldn't answer the question ironically and it was something honest honestly that throughout even roman gray we struggled with from time to time was that we you know we were almost were too adept at writing in different genres yeah. thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous liner notes guests Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.